It's our job to tell better stories. And always remember, it's the risk takers that are rewarded. People are sick and tired of being marketed to, and they're sick and tired of being sold. The single biggest story today in sales and marketing is how our customers are buying different Hey everyone and welcome to another episode of the Growth Hub podcast brought to you by SaaS marketing agency Advanced B2B. It's your host here Edward Ford and joining us today is David Darmanin, founder and CEO of Hotjar. In this episode, David takes us on an adventure along the rocky road to 10 million as he shares some of the highs and lows of building Hotjar. Starting from pre-Hotjar times, David talks about his background growing up in Malta and how he went from studying a doctorate in law to becoming a serial MarTech entrepreneur, and he gives us a very open and honest account of what it really takes to build a successful B2B SaaS business, including some of his previous failed ventures and the key lessons David learned from these, why David and his co-founding team decided to start Hotjar, how Hotjar generated 60,000 beta signups in six months through a gamified referral program, the big challenges in converting these free beta users into paying customers, and how Hotjar reached its first million in ARR, the difficulties with pricing and how David and the team dealt with a European tax law issue just days before Hotjar's commercial launch, how Hotjar was able to scale up, and the key factors that enabled them to reach 10 million in ARR, And David also shares some of the benefits and challenges of growing a fully remote team from the island of Malta, including how to build a strong remote company culture and the keys to successful leadership. Stay tuned to the end of the episode where David takes on our Fast Five challenge and gives his best piece of advice for fellow SaaS growth leaders. So here is episode 14 of the Growth Hub podcast with David Darmanin, founder and CEO at Hotjar. So welcome to the Growth Hub podcast, everyone, and welcome to the show, David Darmanin, CEO of everyone's favorite web analytics and feedback platform, Hotjar. So David, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Edward. It's a pleasure. Yeah, really excited to have you on the show and to hear about Hotjar's story. But before we actually talk about Hotjar, let's... uh, Talk about yourself, David, because people might not know this, but you actually have a PhD in law. So tell us briefly about your background and how a doctor of law became a serial MarTech entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, just to be clear, it's actually not technically a PhD. So in Malta, it's like more a doctorate of laws. Um, so it's, it's, it's quite a, it was back then they've changed the structure, but it was, it was still like six years thesis. It was quite a, quite a hardcore <laughs> um course but but not not quite a phd but it's a it's an interesting story i guess the the short answer is that once i start something i'm the type of person that wants to finish it <laughs> um i'm i'm a little bit hard headed in that way um so so i'd say around the age of 15 16 in in, in malta back then this was quite some time ago right <laughs> um <laughs> you'd have people who would help you out kind of with, with your career paths, right? So you'd be asked questions and it's kind of this thing where they help you choose what subjects to study in school. And I come from a, um, from a family background where my mom was a teacher. She's, she's retired now, but she actually just recently at the age of 70 finished her de- a degree actually. Um, and my sister uh, is a teacher. She's an assistant head in a school my dad for some time was a teacher. So you, you see where I'm going with this, right? Yeah. So um, kind of it was, it was assumed that I would go down the, the, the route of, uh, of um, university and, and academics. Um, so I was always very good at languages. Um, I remember at a young age always dreaming of being a scientist or, or in technology, uh, super passionate about design because my dad always used to design stuff. Um, but unfortunately, back then, there weren't that many courses tailored around this. Um, and in Malta, with my dad being involved in politics, and if you're good at languages, and if you're hard-headed like I am and, and quite outspoken, then the natural thing is that you actually go into law. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting that, um, I think it's still the case today, that Malta being such a tiny country, I think produces like 100 lawyers a year, which is insane. 
Um, yeah, that's, that's quite impressive. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's a big obsession about becoming a lawyer here. So I guess I kind of got caught into that. Funnily enough, I, I pretty much never went to lectures. Uh, so I think the main thing that I learned going to, uh, in the law course was how to hack myself through <laughs> the kind of the exams and, and the assignments. But, but no, to be fair, I'd say I did learn quite a lot of it in terms of just the structure of life, I would say, if you know what I mean, right? Um, how, how you basically, how taxes work, how you open a company, um, the, the impact of, let's say, bankruptcy, um, civil uh, procedure and how kind of one person can bring a claim against the other. And while all this sounds quite boring and I hated it back then, it does give you an interesting backbone when you come to build a business, right? So um, a lot of these things, unfortunately, I see it in, even in our youth. Um, many people have no idea of how these, these things work. So, so it helped me out a lot. And then, um, again, in the end, it also had quite a big impact that my thesis was about privacy and electronic communications. So that gave a lot of backbone to how Hodjar was built in terms of our privacy legacy, right? So a lot of decisions within the product are very privacy-oriented, and, and we're very proud of that. In terms of how I ended up in, in MarTech, um, my, my passion has always been design. Um, to get through the, the legal years, I was working the weekends, uh, doing parties, doing flyers for the parties, doing flyers for others, doing branding. It took me to, do, um, to work for some international clients. So, so I guess just my inquisitive nature led me to discover and, and learn about marketing and design and whatnot. And eventually landed me a job with a Swedish software company where I met my four co-founders. Okay. And actually, before you started Hotjar, you, you had founded two companies, but you've actually said that these, and I'm going to quote you here, failed miserably. So can you tell us why these companies weren't successful and what were some of the big lessons that you learned from these ventures before you then started on Hotjar? So I'd say, it, look, in, in, in entirety, in my, if we want to call it so-called career, more in my lifetime, I think it's more interesting to say, I failed kind of four times, I would say. Um, and only one of these was, was a company. Um, so the other three, were, I didn't actually um, incorporate. Um, so, so that's, I say this only because I think there's a nice lesson there. And also, so it's clear that if, if anyone had to kind of do some research about me, they're not going to find me um, incorporating other startups. Um, <laughs> The first two failures were when I was very young. Uh, the first one, I incorporated an advertising agency. So it wasn't technically a, a startup, more of a business. Um, and the failure there was we were doing it more because it was fun and we were bored and we wanted to have an office and we wanted to have business cards and we wanted to make some money, but we didn't really understand the concept of profit. So that didn't, very last, that didn't last very long. I was 17, 18. Um, the second one was uh, basically the idea of building like a, <clears throat> a WordPress or a Squarespace, uh, which was actually, funny enough, I was again very young, early 20s, was a, was a great idea back then. Kind of, we were a little bit ahead of our time. We had no idea how to execute on that. So we were a couple of people, myself and my cousin, working from uh, a, a, like a garage um, and clueless in terms of commitment and execution. <laughs> Then, then came my job in the software company. I consulted, so I considered to, to, to have learned and seen how many other businesses were, were doing things. Uh, I was lucky enough to consult some of the biggest businesses in the world, and yet I failed again. Um, and again, learning from that painful experience incorporating, my logic at this point was, listen, let me just give a shot at these ideas, even if, it, if I'm uh, kind of um, self-employed, a sole trader of some sorts, but avoid incorporation, right? Just so that I get very quick validation on the idea. Um, the only problem was that with the first um, uh, startup, so this was, I think, around six years ago now, um, I built something which was awesome, would generate amazing value because it was for restaurants, retail outlets and whatnot. The problem was that I had no idea how to address this market. I had no idea how to go sell to it. And the problem was also, I didn't really understand how these guys functioned and worked. So I, was, I realized I was trying to change their behavior and in, in, in some ways educate them, which is not something you wanna be doing because that can be very painful and very slow. Um, 
the problem, again, the big mistake there is that it took us like a year or a year and a half to build the product and realize that. So that was very non-lean. With the second idea, um, it, was, it was kind of a, a widget for websites to show off their social proof and show activity. And again, we knew that it was going to work from a results point of view. We were much more agile this time and we moved much faster. But again, we failed to understand, again, the big learning point here, right? Which was there wasn't a real need for it. There wasn't a market for it. So again, we were changing behavior. So it was, it was painful for us to kick ourselves uh, and say, oh my God, we made this mistake, we made this mistake yet again. <laughs> <laughs> But this time we pivoted very quickly, though, and this is where where we stopped and we thought, hey, maybe we, th we should be thinking bigger. We, sh we should be thinking about the market. And that's where the idea of Hotjar came along, actually. Yeah, and this was actually going to be my next question. So why did you found Hotjar? So the, the decision to do Hotjar was kind of, a, I've already explained part of it, right? I wasn't thinking in terms of markets. And it was interesting because I considered myself to be quite knowledgeable when it comes to marketing. Um, so I spent a lot of time reading uh, very interesting books. Uh, I highly recommend Selling the Invisible, 22 Mutable Laws of Marketing, great books, even though they're slightly dated, but the principles are, are fantastic. In terms of realizing that marketing is all about kind of identifying a market where there is a big enough group of people who have a budget that want to spend on something or have a, a need, right? Um, instead of you trying to create that need, which to most marketers out there, especially those who've received any type of formal education might sound like a no-brainer. But when, when you're self-taught, it's easy to become very good at the tactics, but not get the kind of big picture, if you know what I mean. So, so yeah, so essentially with Hotjar, is, it was this realization that looking at my career, if there's anything that I really knew, it was how to grow a business. It was how to understand and analyze and experience and improve it. That I had been using these tools in this industry for a decade, that I hated them, my customers hated them, because <laughs> they were complicated, expensive, you needed a lot of tools. And we're like, hold on, we're doing startups and trying to use these tools to kind of uh, launch and, and succeed, but we, we kind of don't like these tools and everyone says this, why aren't we tackling a much bigger problem? And in a way, there was this flawed thinking, which was, there's so much competition in this space, so it would be crazy to go there. And instead, we were chasing ideas where there was no competition. But it was at this point that we realized that actually, if you improve something by, by a, a big factor, let's say 10x, then actually you can disrupt a market that is already in existence, which actually can be very powerful. So, so yeah, I brought together um, the best people I had worked with before and said, Let's disrupt this market. Let's think outside the box and bring our strengths to this industry. Our strengths mainly being our knowledge of how to do consumer products. Yeah, so let's explore phase one of your growth story then in Hotjar. And that is going from an idea that you just explained to 60,000 beta signups in just six months. And this was all about reach and virality. And you were successfully able to build uh, scarcity and demand using a very cool gamified waiting list. So can you tell us about the Hotjar beta referral program? So yeah, so it's, it's great that we worked through kind of my experience to date because it kind of gives a little bit context around the decisions we took, right? In many ways, I would say I was uh, desperate. <laughs> there was a point at which how many times am I going to tell my wife we're starting a new project? <laughs> Although she's amazing and super supportive. Um, but yeah, um, at this point, we had to make this work. I had already invested uh, a substantial sum of my own funds into projects that had failed. So I wanted to know very quickly whether this was a good idea or not. So we said, okay, let's spend one month making sure this crazy idea we have, which is taking traditionally expensive to build and, and typically price tag expensive uh, solution, to the masses, right? Would this be even be possible? And we took, I think, some innovative decisions in the way Hotjar works, which allowed us to do it, but we wanted to make sure that it could be done. So we spent one month making sure that, technically speaking, was feasible. We then spent the next month designing what the product would look like. And then we spent a week designing the website and just get it out there, even though the product technically did not exist. Even though it worked, 
but the interface, like the, the experience we had designed was not yet connected to the bits and bytes, if you know what I mean. And this all came out from our needs to kind of get um, uh, feedback from the market as quickly as possible. Um, and yeah, basically up to this time, I had, I had observed quite a few uh, interesting launch um, strategies. And also one of the startups, the first one I had mentioned, which was for restaurants and retail, it was actually um, a kind of a loyalty program slash marketing automation tool um, for, for kind of the brick and mortar uh, shops and, and retail outlets. So we had learned a lot about what works in terms of incentivizing action and what creates kind of um, viral might be pushing it, right? Because it requires a, a higher level of coefficient, but let's say word of mouth. So we had experimented for a year and a half. So we actually got something out of that. So we put in the ideas that we had of what, what we think we thought would work, which was very simple, which was we presented on a website, here's what Hotjar will be. Here's what the innovation will be. It's going to be cheaper, it's going to be simpler, and it's going to work differently. You only get data when you need it, as opposed to capturing data constantly. And it's overkill and expensive. And we're like, if you like this idea, give us your email, and we'll put you on the waiting list. So the moment it's out, you'll get access. As soon as someone signed up, we would then say, hey, we need all the help we can get. Notice that we gave a reason, right? We're not funded, we're self-funded, like we're not like throwing money at this. Um, so we need help to make this vision possible. So if you share this with your friends, we'll actually bump you up the list so you can move up your position. And then we sweetened it by saying, um, we kind of, again, this is what we learned from a previous startup. We catered to what we think are two ways of thinking, two psyches. One is the competitive psyche and the other one is the reward psyche. So the competitive is where we say, if you're in the top 20 positions, you get a lifetime account for Hotjar, lifetime analytics and user research. Uh, but if you, if you just share with, with five friends, um, we'll give you six months for free. Um, and if you're in the top 200, you get uh, a t-shirt. But if you share with 20 friends, you get this. You see, you see the difference? So one is kind of competitive in, in the position you get. The other is, is very reward, like fixed reward. So many people we had discovered don't like to compete, but love the idea that, okay, I know with consistency that if I share and get five people to, to sign up, then I'm gonna get the t-shirt. And this worked incredibly well. I think more than because of the t-shirt <laughs> or the six months, because those are kind of small incentives. I think it was, it was about, we had scratched an itch that many other people had, and then we incentivized it really well. Um, and then we also had emails going out as soon as you, si you signed up someone. We would say, oh, yay, thank you. You signed up a friend, four more to go to get a t-shirt. So we put a lot, of, a lot of thought, again, things that we had worked on a lot in our previous startup. So we were lucky in many ways. Yeah, that's genius. And, and a good lesson to never underestimate the power of a free t-shirt. But the beta was a big success, like you said. So what were some of the key learnings for you from from the first phase of Hot Jaws journey and the, the beta referral? I'd say the biggest learning overall beyond product, beyond the industry and the space was that people, especially early adopters, right? But people in general love to help and they love to give feedback. And I think many startups, many businesses uh, and entrepreneurs underestimate this. Um, so I think, again, uh, we were lucky that we, we came with a very specific mindset to the beta, which was, let's use this period to learn, to listen. So we literally, we had Intercom running back then, um, and we had around 60,000 people actually uh, sign up, of which I think we had around 20,000 sites actually run Hotjar. Um, and, and, and as you can imagine, all the users around that, I think a relatively equivalent number. So we were... We were listening to these people. We were talking to them. Everything that was said to us was kept in a Trello board. And whenever we fixed something that was mentioned to us or we improved something thanks to their feedback, we'd actually take the time and say thank you and, and follow up and say, by the way, we got this done thanks to your uh, input. And the reaction we got was just insane. 
like people really enjoyed and acknowledged the fact that like love the fact that we were actually kind of letting them know so i think the power of just human connection at this point and and just really showing the community we were building that we cared about what we were building had a really bigger impact than we thought so we created an army of of um fans for hodger which till today kind of help us out by recommending us and, and introducing us into other business they they kind of move into or start to work with so i think that's the one thing that we we, we really didn't see coming we i guess i've never worked in a business where people love the product and the way we did so until you experience it like you don't know that this is really possible yeah that's great and uh now I'm going to go a little bit David Scott on you. And, you know, phase one had established a clear product market fit. So the next stage was about the transition from beta to searching for that repeatable, scalable, and actually profitable growth model. And you did this uh, by reaching 1 million in ARR about six months after closing the beta. So the first question here, how did you manage your 60,000 beta users and actually turn them into paying customers? Yeah, this subject was, it, it led to a few sleepless nights, I would say, because this was the point where, okay, we've got a product people love, but are we going to make any money? And this is where we ate our dog food, which is we actually, we did quite a few surveys with our customers to understand, again, like you said, right, we surveyed around product uh, market fit, like how, how upset would they be if they lost it? How much value do they get out of it? Um and this was the point where we realized many of our fans couldn't afford the price tag. Um, and this is the point where we realized we're getting a lot of word of mouth from the product, which is kind of our brand. It's how we get leads. So it would be a mistake for us uh, to shut these people out once the beta stopped. But we had an economical kind of, more of an economics issue, which is we had said that Hodjar would be 29 euros, right? $29. So the economics of doing freemium and the next price up is 29 euros, 29 dollars is not ideal. <laughs> <laughs> so what we decided to do was we said, okay, because everyone is enjoying the product so much, we said, and, and because we want to stay true to, to our commitment to the community, we said, let's stick to the 29 euro um, model. But we say, okay, what you were using during the beta was the 29 euro product. At the end of the beta, you can choose to downgrade to the free, a free model. And basically what we did was we looked at the traffic that our sites had, we, we created some patterns and we said, we think based on our, serve, on our data, both qualitative and quantitative, that the majority of our users who cannot afford it and have just a little bit of traffic, we've created a free package for them, which has captures data from less traffic, has a limit on reports, so it means that they might need to delete stuff every now and then, but they can still continue using it. And they get, obviously, to spread the word about Hodra. So the model was, and this, this, when you think about it, I think looking back was genius, right? Which was, you are currently on Pro. To continue on Pro, you have to pay 29 euros. Or you can downgrade to our free version, which probably based on your traffic, if you're small, is not going to impact the experience much for you. So by transitioning this way, what we ended up with was um, in April 2015, when we launched commercially out of beta, a lot of customers, uh, sorry, a lot of our beta users became customers because they got the value. And those that couldn't afford it still stayed around and continue using Hodger and recommending it. So I think it was the power of qualitative. It was the power of us in getting to know and understand our customers, which kind of led us to make some really good decisions there. Definitely one key thing here was that we really over-communicated. So we decided, even though we had, we had communicated a, a deadline, which is 1st March, the beta will end, we said, we're going to extend this by an extra month. And said, kind of, even though the beta ends on this date, we're actually going to give you a month of free of this 29. So we're, we're and, and even month, weeks before this, we gave a timeline. Here's what's going to happen. Here's how this is going to affect you. So we, we over-communicated and we were super transparent. And that's, again, something that our users really appreciated. Yeah, so why did you choose freemium as a business model? And, and where did you actually come up with $29 as your entry-level price? So one answer is more impressive than the other. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
We'll go so with the I, impressive one. Let's go with the impressive one first. Yeah. Start strong and, and on the other side. Um, I'd say the main reason is kind of what I mentioned, right? Which is freemium for us came from the fact that we, we saw that the word about Hodra was spreading a lot through early adopters and enthusiasts that didn't necessarily have a business where they could pay for Hodra. But, they, they, but a lot of people who, who kind of are using Hodra at their businesses also have side projects or are tinkering with sites where they'd love to use Hodra for free. Um, so I guess freemium for us came out of the realization that having free um, uh, creates more uh, fans and, and enables more word of mouth. And that was a very smart decision. 29 euros, $29 price point, I think in a way came out a little bit out of desperation. <laughs> so my point is we didn't want to take any risks there. Um, however, it's interesting that the co-founders together, we worked in B2C in software utilities. This is pre-smartphone for quite a few years together. Um, so this was utilities for, for Windows, right? So it was uh, update your drivers. Um, eliminate uh, whatever files which which are kind of doing any harm to your PC or whatnot. So, not the most fun, exciting, and stuff to be proud of, to be honest. But back then, this was obviously quite a big market, and it was the twenty nine euro, it was the twenty nine dollar um, kind of price point. I, I had actually worked a lot in in doing elasticity of demand, like really big scientific tests on finding the ideal price. So I, I, I knew that from a consumer point of view, 29 is a sweet spot. So anyone who's kind of taking a consumer decision would buy software 29. Um, now obviously we were taking a big risk because in a way we weren't consumer oriented, but the risk or at least more kind of a, a belief we had, or we still have till today is that we think, and. Um, enterprise software or business software in general is going to become much more based on consumer practices and models. Um, and bigger businesses are going to pay more, but in general, the practices of, of B2C are much more enjoyable. Like people prefer that. And I think it's going to be expected from business software makers to behave in that way. That is our belief. Um, so, that's kind of why we ported the 29 into Hotjar, and that was a very quick decision we took. Looking back, probably we should have done a little bit more research about it, but no regrets. <laughs> okay, okay, that's good. Good to know. And actually, a few days before your commercial launch, you had a bit of a problem, and coincidentally, it was a legal one. So you actually needed to call upon the lawyer within. Uh, so tell us about the, the problem you had with European tax law, VAT, and how you actually solved this. Yeah, so what, real, what, we, what happened was that the regulations were changing at this time where previously um, in Europe, so for, for listeners who are not European, in, in Europe we have um, uh, a tax which is called VAT, so value-added tax. Um, and basically the idea is that when, when you sell anything, um, you basically add this tax over and above. So it's kind of a sales tax for for American listeners, um, and it applies across Europe, but every country has its own rate, <laughs> right? Just to make things a little bit more interesting. Um, and up to that point, um, uh, basically, if, if, you were, if you were a business primarily set up to sell to other businesses or, or business nature, kind of VAT, you could avoid this whole kind of craziness because VAT didn't apply. But there were changes that were happening then, which said, you need to get the VAT number of the other company that you were uh, kind of selling to, and if in default of that, you actually need to charge VAT. And during the beta, this was the last thing that we had on our minds. On our minds, and all of a sudden, towards the end, like our accountant was like, "How are you dealing with VAT, by the way?" And we're like, "Oh no!" And there was no way that we were going to manage to execute on this in time for the commercial release and the timeline we had. So we had to get creative. Um, and in essence, what we did was we found a way to kind of avoid adding that on top and instead absorbed it into the price, which, as you can imagine, created 
hell for us later to kind of backtrack it and, and kind of fix that. But I guess in true startup nature, we stuck to the deadline, we got it done, and we dealt with it in a scrappy way, but we made it work. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, good to uh, delve into a bit of legal issues as well, given your background. Sure. But let's, uh, let's go back to marketing now. And uh, one question I have, and that is, how did you actually step up your marketing in order to acquire new Hotjar customers who were not part of the beta? Yeah, I, I think one of the best piece of advice I ever heard um, from a marketing point of view is that especially early on, but in general, this is a good practice that you want to do less and you do it really well, right? So especially when you're, you're starting a startup and, and I, 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 this is also advice that I would give to others. Um, you don't want to be doing like content paid, um, like partners. Like if, if you stretch out too much, you're not going to be very good at doing the stuff you do, which means that it's very easy for others to do it better than you, right? So we, we took a difficult decision at this point, which was, we, we believe that content would have been a wonderful way for us to go to market because we had a very interesting story, very interesting message to get across. But content is very time-consuming. We did the whole beta, five people, which was insane. Hodger as a product is very complex and very time-consuming. So, and, product, and, and content was a new thing to us. So we took this painful decision of saying, okay, we're not going to do content for now. And instead, we did paid, paid advertising, right? Which is what we knew how to do really, really, really well. But we did it in a slightly different way, which is more conversational um, and more kind of news-oriented versus the typical ad which says, uh, buy Hotjar, get Hotjar. You know what I mean? So it was more focused on the value and the newsworthiness of Hodger. So an all new tool. Now you can see how your visitors are really using your site. Or if you're a designer, now you can see if your designs are working or not. You know what I mean? So we were lucky enough to have spent a decade working in this and, and to understand how to do this really, really well. Um, so we did that. And, and we started with, with um, uh, social um, paid advertising, uh, which was great for us because we knew exactly who we were building the product for and the value to them because we were building it for us. And I think in general, the chances of success are, are much, much bigger, super high if you are building something for yourself. This is something the guys at Basecamp speak about a lot and I really believe in. So I guess, again, this was very easy for us to know who to target and what to say to them. Um, and Facebook in specific, specifically was a great platform for us to launch. And the beauty of paid is you get to tinker and experiment with different ways of describing the product and measuring exactly what works the best. So in a way, very early on, that was something that was very effective for us. Now, we're, near, we're over two years later, we're now actually starting to invest into content, which is going to be the next big pillar for us. But we continue to keep ruthless focus in terms of what channels we work with. Yeah, and this is something I want to move on to and talk about now, because you're well and truly at phase three of, of David Scott's model, and that is you know, scaling the business. So you soon reached 3 million in ARR, and now you've been on a tear recently, having reached 10 million ARR earlier this autumn when you announced it at SASTOC. So firstly, many congratulations on hitting that big milestone. But uh, let's, let's actually talk about the next big pillar in, in content marketing. And in particular, I think a lot of people noticed something you released at the end of the summer, called the essential guide to growing your early stage SaaS startup. So tell us, why did you make this epic content piece and what results did you get from it? Yeah, we're, we're quite big with giving back in general. Um, we, like we, we, we kind of tend to overshare at Hodger, like even part of our story and, and what we're going through. Because I think part of our vision for Hotjar, like our vision, a slight side note, is that we, we're, we're building a solution that we hope will change the way the web is built and improved by focusing more on our users and customers, right? Less about the numbers and more really kind of understanding the experience and what our users and customers need and what they expect. That is why we're building Hotjar. And I think it's difficult to do this without thinking about how a business is run and the mindset 
behind the business, right? So this is why we're sharing a lot about our journey because we think that is probably as effective as as the tool we're we're putting into into everyone's in, in, into teams' hands, right? So it's it's the mindset. So um, so kind of we want to give back by sharing our story, but um, one thing that we realized being remote and especially co-founders being Maltese and based in Malta that our network is not particularly very strong. We don't come from like some big exit or some famous startup. So we, we being remote, it's very easy to isolate yourself and not build up that network, right? So what we decided was, we said, what if, right, we, we went the ultimate giving back in a little bit more quality way, which is let's create something called the X Awards, which is basically, it's an awards for, for an experience awards, right? So we, we, we give out uh, monetary rewards. I think there was three awards that we gave to very early stage startups below like a very low revenue, below any big amounts raised, small teams that are building something which is awesome, right? Um, and we basically made a call for applications. We had like hundreds of applications, I think around 600 applicants. Um, and we basically flew out the best teams to Malta, all costs on us. Um, and we invited some amazing speakers to Malta as well, who did like a two day or kind of more of a one and a half day um, kind of program around like the main concepts around uh, building a startup, whether it's how to execute, how to be lean, how like raising funds, right? The do's and don'ts, product market fit. It was really, really interesting. Um, and we, did, we also invited the hardware team. The reason we invited the hardware team is we really believe that while we'd love to have most of the hardware team working for us for a very long time, and I think they will, <laughs> some of the people we, we hire, if we're lucky, will be rock stars, right? And they're going to go on and build their own businesses and do other things. So we kind of wanted to offer this training not only to, in, to early stage startups out there and budding entrepreneurs, but also to the hardware team. Um, so kind of in a way, it was, we felt we ticked off a lot of boxes with this event, which is um, invited startups, gave more visibility to the importance of experience, did training, brought our team there. We did networking. Um, like the, the benefits we've got from this since May when we did it this year has been unbelievable right? in terms of introductions, getting to know people, sharing stories. Uh, so the cherry on the cake this is a very long answer I'm giving you here. <laughs> as we built our content team was like, hold on, like we should share what we did with the public in general, right? So why not open up the learnings from this event to everyone? So essentially our amazing content team, so big shout out to Louis and Fio here. Um, they basically looked at, we recorded everything of this event and basically they, they looked at all the content, what was done, what was talked about. We looked at our, our general thinking about all these topics and then we looped in also um, third parties and specialists to give their contribution as well and we built this amazing yeah guide which I think is something we were extremely proud of yeah it was great we we loved it uh, here at advanced b2b and another question about about marketing and of course going from one or three million ARR to 10 million ARR it's, it's a huge gap so can you summarize and share you know what did you feel were some of the other big factors from a marketing perspective that enabled you to reach 10 million in ARR so quickly? It's a good question. And I actually, in, recently in Dublin, I did, um, I, I did a, a session about how we went from zero to 10 million in, and I called it an engine, the engine that took, took us from zero to 10. Because what's interesting is if you, if you lay the right foundations uh, and you build the right engine, you actually get there pretty much in a straight line. So there isn't that much that you need to do to get there, if you know what I mean, which sounds kind of a little bit kind of patronizing to say, yeah, it's super easy, right, to get to 10 million. But my point is we planned for 10 million when we were already at zero, if you know what I mean. And so it's all about thinking, how does this engine get there? And to me, the engine is about, I was actually, I, I, I help out and advise a few startups, and this is the thing that I, I speak the most about, especially in SaaS, which is your engine is all about looking at it from a cohort point of view. How many 
of the, especially if you're doing free and SaaS, right? How many of uh, new accounts, people that start to join and use the tool, continue to use it and over time actually become customers? And that truly is your engine, right? That's one aspect, let's say, of the engine, but it's the most important one. So how well is that working? And if it's not working well, why isn't it working well? What are the points where it's dropping off? Why are people not buying it? And addressing those things very, very, very quickly, very early on. And that's something that I think we did extremely well, even back in the beta stage. So already we were trying to understand what is it that, that kind of is affecting usage and not usage and where were people dropping off and whatnot. So that is really important. The second aspect of the engine is the economics of it, right? So if especially you're doing paid, how much does it cost to acquire someone, right? Um, and how likely is that person to then recommend other people to you, right? So that's the word of mouth. It's using something called NPS, so net promoter score, uh, to understand how likely they are to recommend you to others. And also measuring that, right? So obviously attribution is very difficult, but it's very easy to see that, for example, in Hodjar's case, 30% of new accounts are coming from paid and then 70% are coming from what we call direct. But we know that as these numbers move, we can attribute roughly another 20% to that 30% paid. So we know roughly it's 50-50. But we also know that the paid moves the free. So I guess what I'm trying to say, which is kind of a non-answer, is you need to plan around your engine from very early on. And the biggest mistake I see in startups is they're only looking at kind of the very end results. So someone bought today. Today we got 100 euros in MRR. Um, but they're not on, like, in a way, we don't even look at that at Hotjar. You know what I mean? Like for us, that is just an output, but it's not the engine. So, so yeah, again, my advice there would be it's really important to be analytical and understand what makes the engine work. Yeah, and a couple of things to ask before we uh, wrap up this interview. And you mentioned earlier about the fact that you're from Malta. So being based on, on this small island, you were pretty much forced into building a 100% remote team from day one. So tell us, how were you able to build and scale up your company culture and from a leadership perspective what are some of the big challenges when operating fully remotely yeah that's that's a few good questions there so <laughs> i'd say even goes beyond just remote like I, I guess the advantage of being like maltese even though i was born actually in australia but i'm maltese my co-founders at least two of them are maltese and another is swede living in malta right um it forces it forces you to, to not just hire remotely, but also to build a global business. So to us, the, the fact that we hire remotely is, is, is obviously we, we love to work remotely ourselves, but it's actually more an output of the fact that we we're building a global business. So we never stop to think, how are we going to become big in the UK? Or how are we going to become successful in Germany? Those thoughts never crossed our mind. Uh, for us from day one, it was how does Hodra become a global brand? How does it become a solution that is used by pretty much everyone in this industry as opposed to thinking, it, thinking about it from a geography standpoint? And when you think about it, if you're going to try and achieve this, especially if you want to be self-funded and be a little bit more aware of lifestyle in general as opposed to just growth for the sake of growth, you, you need to be able to hire the best people you can find. And you also need to be able to hire people close to where your customers are, right? So, so in reality, there aren't many ways of achieving this. <laughs> One way is that you raise a ton of money and you prepare to travel around the world like crazy and, uh, and do it that way. Or you take the hot jar route, which is more doing it a little bit more organically um, hiring people where you need them and, and the best people that you can find. Um, then obviously there is the fact, which is a benefit that we love to work remotely ourselves. Um, we are, I, I think in general, looking at the team, we kind of, we're hiring people that are similar to us, but different in many ways. The beauty of hiring people from many countries is the diversity in the team 
is amazing, but then we are kind of similar in the sense that we are perhaps a little bit more, um, let's say mature, I say this in inverted commas, in the sense that most of us are in relationships or have young families, which means we tend to value remote more. And those of us who are not love the fact that they have the freedom to travel and do whatever they want. But I'd say the biggest value comes from, from kind of, um, let's say, moving towards building the, that, that, that family, right? That aspect is, is, is super valuable when you're remote. So I'd say in general, that value to us kind of supersedes the other challenges we, that we have. And you brought up a good point, leadership, right? How do you do that? And the, the short answer to me is you hire the right people, which I know is kind of, again, a non-answer in many, way, many ways, but the key is you, you need to hire people that are very driven, that have the same mindset as you, that, that have, have a track record of learning and growing, have a growth mindset, and the rest kind of falls into place, right? Then from an operational and structural point of view within the company, we need to put much more thought than a traditional business does into how to, to be aligned, especially in a documented way, if you know what I mean. So there just needs to be a little bit more discipline around if we're going to do something, let's write it down in a more structured way. If we had a meeting, let's be more structured and disciplined in writing down what we agreed on. But then we also have, for example, what we call a one-page strategic document, which highlights what the hell we're doing as a business. So this allows us to focus more on leading versus managing people and definitely not micromanaging, if you know what I mean. And I think this is great. It's great to have to do this because I think every business is better if they do this. So in a way, I think remote presents challenges that if you can solve, just make you a better business in general. So that's at least what we've experienced so far, being 50 people in the team. Great. And what has 2018 got in store? And you know, what can we expect to see from Hotjar next year? Yeah, next year is going to be a very interesting year for us. Um, um, as we start to finally see the benefits of a lot of the, let's say, behind the scenes work that was done this year. I, I, I published a blog post a few months ago about how we're reinvesting heavily into Hotjar and what we're working on, which is an interesting read. So we've, we've pretty much redesigned and redone our, our, the, arc, the technical architecture of how we capture and store events, uh, which means now we're going to be able to tie these things together in a much more interesting way. So we're going to see much more sophisticated, but still easy to use features. We're going to see Hotjar moving more towards um, better measuring and understanding your goals and events that are happening and then tie them back to qualitative and visualizing kind of uh, features. So that's also something really interesting. But we've also put a lot of work into redoing our, 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 our billing and the way kind of we charge so that it's a much more pleasurable experience, especially for customers that want to pay yearly or want to do invoices. It's something that obviously post beta, we, we didn't put a lot of effort into. So there's a lot happening there. And then I think also from a cultural point of view and, and business growth, uh, there's also going to be some really interesting things as, as the company starts to grow more. And as we invest into some, some more, uh, some, some kind of new initiatives, such as start investing more into integrations. Uh, we're going to double down on, on culture in general and better hiring. So in general, I think we're going to be hearing more and more about Hotjar in terms of how we work as a company, revealing even more about us. Um, again, so that we can share, give back, but also hopefully attract some, some amazing talent, which is what we're looking for. Awesome. So it sounds like there's a lot going on and a lot to look forward to at Hotjar next year. And uh, now let's move to the closing questions and, and wrap up today's episode. And we always finish with our fast five challenge and it's really simple. So I just ask five questions and all you need to do is answer them as quickly as possible. So are you ready? Let's do it. All right. So what books are you currently reading? I'm currently reading Radical Candor. Great book about leadership. Great. And a SaaS company that you love and why? This, was a, this is a difficult one. I'd, I'd, uh, well, uh, I'd have to say Envision. I, I really love Envision. And why? I forgot. Oh, yeah. um, 
I, I think the, 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 the remote, right, which is awesome. So they're building something that people love and they, they re, re, kind of ruthlessly focus on, on their user and customer as opposed to just the business side. Great. And your favorite place to read about marketing online? Um, I've shifted a little bit away from marketing. So um, I'm, I'm actually reading a little bit more about SaaS now. And I love to read uh, the blogs by Saster and, and Sastock. Great. Your most important growth metric? MPS. So net promoter score. Okay. That's the same answer as Bill Mikaitis. Oh, yeah. He's, yeah. he's our advisor, right? So, uh, <laughs> so okay. that's so he, one of the reasons why we kind of wanted to work together, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, your best piece of advice for fellow SaaS growth leaders? Uh, the best piece of advice would definitely be it's, it's, it's so easy to kind of get stuck behind screens looking at numbers and lines and graphs. And that is the moment you start to die. <laughs> <laughs> you need to get out there. You need to speak to your customers, understand them, um, uh, be transparent, explain to them what's going on, understand their challenges. So I, I guess make sure that the human connection is is there and it stays especially as you grow perfect hey david thank you so much for joining us on the growth Hub podcast and sharing the amazing hot job journey with us it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today thanks for your kind words it was really fun thanks for having me that was david Darmanin sharing the hot job story and providing us with valuable insight into his experiences in the world of B2B SaaS. If you enjoyed this episode, then you can give David a shout out on Twitter at David Darmanin. Also, if you're enjoying the Growth Hub podcast, then please subscribe and leave us a review. We truly appreciate any feedback you have. And you're always welcome to get in touch with me on Twitter at Nordic Edward. So thank you for listening to the Growth Hub podcast brought to you by SaaS marketing agency, Advanced B2B. This is your host, Edward Ford, signing off and make sure you check out The Growth Hub at advancedb2b.com slash thegrowthhub for more content and resources on everything B2B SaaS growth. It's our job to tell better stories. And always remember, it's the risk takers that are rewarded. People are sick and tired of being marketed to and they're sick and tired of being sold. The single biggest story today in sales and marketing is how our customers are